I'm just going to pray over it. Lord, thank you that you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are the God of the generations. And Lord, you have brought these young men. They are gifts from you. And Lord, I just want to bless every young man in here, Lord God, that they would follow after you, Lord, that they would not be bound by anything in the past. But just like Joseph was sharing, Lord, they would have an encounter with the risen, living Jesus Christ who rules and reigns over all. His kingdom rules over all. And to the end of his kingdom, there will be no end, Lord. And so so we pray over them right now that you would bless them, that you would protect them from the attack of the evil one, that you would fill them with the knowledge of the gospel. They would be full of your Holy Spirit and would have both the fruit and the gifts of the Spirit operating in their lives, Lord, so that the world would see what it means to be a godly man. And so, Lord, we bless them in that, and we thank you for what you did in Joseph's life, and may it be multiplied again and again and again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, buddy. Thank you, man. Amen. Wow, that's good. Uh, yesterday we had a graduation for YWAM uh, Louisville in this uh, room, and there were around 500 people here yesterday. It was the biggest YWAM graduation we've ever had, and we had teams coming back from Egypt, Colombia, Thailand, Brazil, Vietnam, Argentina, and a certain country in the Middle East that won't be named, okay, for safety reasons. And we had all kinds of testimonies, and it was just beautiful to see what we get to be a part of. That when you, and don't worry, I'm not taking up another offering. We already received the offering. But whenever you give to New Life, you're not just funding what we as New Life do as a church, but what YWAM Louisville does and all the people that they touch. I mean, they had, they had seven people get born again in Egypt. They had ten people get born again in Vietnam. I mean, the, the stories just keep going on and on. But we had a piece of that. And the reason we had a piece of that is that we make room for what God wants to do. That's number one, right? We... I started to sing the song, but you'll be glad that I don't. Um, you're welcome, okay? You're welcome. Uh, but it's, we make room for that, and you guys give generously. So we have this facility that I, one day I want to stand before God and say, we use the buildings you gave us. Every day, 24-7, there's, you know, something going on. And so I'm glad for that. I want to just say thanks to Phil for filling the pulpit while I was gone last week. He did a great job. I watched it, and uh, I would commend that to you if you haven't seen it. But I'm back. Fun's over. Open your Bibles to John chapter 4. We've been in a series of messages on the gospel of John. And John is, as a gospel, structured around encounters with Jesus. And so we're in chapter 4 now, and the context, and this is going to be more of a, a Bible study than a sermon per se, last, or two weeks ago, when we were in chapter 3, there was this encounter with a guy named Nicodemus, who was a cultural insider. He was powerful, smart, well-connected, but he comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness. Now, in chapter 4, Jesus is going to encounter a woman who is a cultural outsider, she is a racial outsider. She is a moral outsider. She is an outcast, but Jesus is going to meet her in broad daylight. The juxtaposition is on purpose. John is trying to say something to those of us who have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. And I pray that God gives us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying today, and I think he will. Let's look at the text, John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. 
Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. Now, stop right there. He had to go through Samaria. But did he? have to go through Samaria? You're going to see a map up here of, of the nation of Israel in Jesus' time, and I hope that's legible and big enough for everybody to read. But you'll notice at the beginning in verse 1, Jesus is in Judea. That's at the bottom there. And he's going to go to Galilee, which is at the top. And you'll see Samaria is right in the middle there, but the Samaritans were regarded by the Jews as half-breeds. They didn't have all the right scriptures. They didn't worship in the right place or in the right way. The only reason they were there, according to the Jews, was that they weren't good enough to be carried off into slavery when the Assyrians had taken them into slavery earlier. And they had stayed and intermarried with the Canaanites. So they were of mixed Israelite pagan blood. And all of that was aggravated by the fact that after the Babylonian exile, the Samaritans had actually tried to stop the Jews from rebuilding Jerusalem. The Samaritans had actually teamed up with the Syrian monarchs to stop the Jews. And so in response, in in 112 BC, the Jewish uh, uh, leader John Hyrcanus destroyed the Samaritan temple, which was on Mount Gerizim. And that just kind of, that was the last nail in the coffin. There was, there was no getting over this. There were, I mean, the, the, the hatred, the feuding between the Jews and the Samaritans would make the Hatfields and the McCoys look like an Amish bake sale, okay? Like, like they didn't like each other. And so here's what would happen. Often, Jews who were in Judea that wanted to go to Galilee, they would, cro- I know this is kind of hard to see because it's kind of small, they would actually cross over the Jordan River to the east, And they would go up through the area of the Decapolis and they would cross back over into Galilee in order to miss Samaria. It's kind of like I have some family members in Canada who when they want to go across Canada, they didn't really enjoy people from Quebec that much. And so they go down into the United States, go around and then back up into Canada. And so it's kind of a similar thing, right? And that's what they do. So did he have to go through Samaria? Elsewhere, when you're reading the Gospel of John, the language of necessity refers not to geography, but to the will of God. Here's the implication. Did he have to go through Samaria just to get there? No. Did he have to go through Samaria to obey God? Yes, he did. See, if Jesus is going to minister to this lady, he's going to have to go through Samaria. There are certain people who can only be reached in Samaria. You're going to have to go through Samaria. And, 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 that, and Samaria might be for you a place that you don't really want to go, right? It might not be comfortable for you. It might be exhausting. And in fact, we're going to find out in just a moment, Jesus here was tired. It said he was tired from the journey, so he sits down. You, going into Samaria might be exhausting for you. They might not be your people. You know how we do that sometimes. My people, I feel comfortable when I'm not, not my people. I'm a little uncomfortable. Sometimes you have to be uncomfortable to reach the people in Samaria. You might not even like them that much. <laughs> 
One, one of my favorite testimonies from yesterday, we had a team come back from Columbia, and they were telling the story that there was a group of these guys, and they, were, they had to go to a place, and there was a road that would take them to where they were going, and they were going to walk, but it, it curved around, and it was kind of long, but there was a, like a riverbed there, and that was, I guess the water was down, and there was a soccer field on the other side, and they could just cut through that way. So one of them says, I think we should cut through the soccer field. And so they do that. They, they cut down through the little you know, riverbed, they come back up, they go through the soccer field, and as they're going through the soccer field, there's part of a soccer team, it wasn't the whole team, was practicing, and they kick the ball, and the ball comes over to the Wowammers, and they've got a guy, a local pastor with them too, and, and they kick the ball back to them. And the soccer team is like, why are y'all here? Like, we're practicing soccer on the field, and you're cutting through our field. Why are you here? And they said, well, we just came to tell you about Jesus. They gave some testimonies, they laid out the gospel clearly, and the entire soccer team got born again on that day. Sometimes you got to go through the soccer field. You might say, well, I don't like football, I like football. But I'm not a soccer fan, I'm an American football fan. It doesn't matter. There's some people, you got, you, if you're going to reach them, if you're going to obey God, you're going to have to cut through the soccer field. You're going to have to go through Samaria. Verse 5. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey. Stop right there. Notice, when you come to the Gospels, Jesus is not just appearing as a superman. He was, in fact, fully God, but he was also, in fact, fully human, meaning he experienced everything you and I experienced. He got tired. He's tired. He sat down by the well. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Now, stop right there for a second. Jacob is mentioned twice in that text, which is a clue of what's going to happen and what it means. See, when a biblical author slips a name in multiple times in a story, it's a hint. It's a, it's a clue, and it pays off to do some detective work to figure it out. Sometimes in the New Testament, the writers will use what is called a type story or an echo from the Old Testament. They will deliberately use phrases or names or stories to remind you of an Old Testament story to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Now, we often miss the echo for a number of reasons. Number one, we often read too quickly and it doesn't dawn on us. Number two, many of us don't know the Old Testament as well as we should. And so what is supposed to be obvious isn't obvious to us. Number three, we're not reading it in the original language so we can miss direct quotes. But if we're careful, in this story in John 4, it's going to remind us of a scene that happens at least three times in the Old Testament. And it's called the betrothal scene. You remember this happened with Isaac's servant and Rebekah in Genesis 24. It happened with Jacob and Rachel. And remember, Jacob's mentioned two times already. He'll be mentioned again. So there's a direct allusion here between Jacob and Rachel in Genesis 29, Isaac's servant and Rebekah in Genesis 24, and Moses and Zipporah in, in um, Exodus 2. They all have some elements in common. And this is the way the story goes. Upon leaving his family circle and joining are journeying to a foreign land, a prospective bridegroom will encounter a marriageable woman at a well. After water has been drawn from the well, news of the guy's arrival will be reported to the woman's home. The stranger will then be invited for dinner, and later the two will be betrothed. 
This happens three times in the Old Testament. In this story, Jesus leaves the home of the Jews. He journeys to a foreign land of the Samaritans. He's already been referred to as the bridegroom in chapter 3, verse 29. Right, so John's already teeing us up for this. He encounters a woman at the well. After a request to draw water and some dialogue, news of his arrival is taken to her home and he's invited to stay. The betrothal that you might expect, however, doesn't happen. Or does it? Is this betrothal scene supposed to alert us to the fact that the Samaritan people are being redeemed. The Samaritans, the least likely people imaginable, are being brought into the bride of Christ. Now, the other thing we got to deal with in this text is they, the text says it happened at noon, which is not historically when women typically came to fetch water from the well. Don't you like that word, fetch? I think we don't use it very often, but we should bring it back. Typically, they didn't go to fetch water in the middle of the day. Because typically it was done early in the morning or in the evening when it was cooler because getting water from a well is hard work. I mean, we don't think about that, right? Because we just go to the kitchen and turn on the faucet. But getting water from a well is hard. I, I, you know, when I was a little kid, I had a great grandfather, my mom's grandfather. And I don't even remember what his name was because we called him Big Daddy. And Big Daddy always had a cigar in his mouth. I mean, he, I never saw him smoke a cigar. I never heard, saw him smoking it, but he always had one, and he just chewed on it. And, and, and at Big Daddy's house, he had a well. And you had to pull water up out of the well. And I tried to do it one time. Now I was just a little kid, but I'm telling you, that's some hard work. So there's a reason you typically didn't do it at noon when it's hot. So why is she there at noon? Well, there's two possible answers. The first is a literary one. John often contrasts light and dark. And so while Nicodemus, the Jewish Pharisee male who should get it, comes in the dark and doesn't get it, this woman who has a questionable past encounters Jesus in the blazing heat of noon at the time of maximum light, and she not only gets it, she becomes a believer, and she becomes one of the first evangelists to the Gentiles, leads an entire Samaritan village to Jesus. We're supposed to see the juxtaposition. Here's the other possible reason, and it's a historical one. As we're going to find out in the story, this woman has a checkered past. And we don't know why, so we're not going to demonize her. We don't know why she has this checkered past, but she's had a bunch of husbands. She's living with a dude that's not her husband. So it is quite likely that she's coming at noon because none of the other women in the village will be there. She's coming at noon so she can avoid all the other women in the village. She is an outsider morally, and she's trying to stay away from the people who might judge her and condemn her. And ironically, she encounters Jesus, the only one who has the right to condemn her, but does not. <laughs> My Jesus. Now, just note this, just a side note. Here she is. She's doing a daily, mundane, routine, everyday activity of life, and she encounters Jesus. Listen. You don't have to wait till church on Sunday morning to encounter Jesus. Sometimes you encounter Jesus when you're just least expected. You're just going about your everyday mundane routine thing. Here's the point. Keep your eyes open. Keep your eyes open. You never know when you might run into him. Verse 7. 
When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her. And by the way, just side note here, I don't have this in my notes, but as I was reading this week, uh, uh, I read one thing that Josephus said that the rabbis taught that you can never be sure if a Samaritan is uh, following cleanliness laws, so never take anything from them because you'll become ceremonially unclean. And here's Jesus asking her to give him a drink because Jesus' holiness is not lost by touching a sinner. It goes the opposite way. The sinner doesn't make Jesus lose his holiness. Jesus' holiness touches the sinner. I, that, I just, that was just on the cuff. That was, thank you, Lord. Okay. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with. Then the well's deep. Where can you get this living water? In other words, you haven't even got a bucket. Are you greater than our father Jacob, third time he's mentioned, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? See, she doesn't understand. And you, the reader, are going, come on, honey. He don't mean the water in the well. He means. And when that happened, this is you encountering Jesus. And, and, and this, you know, it's the third time you mentioned Jacob, so this hint is getting louder and isn't it ironic that we, because we've been reading, we've been in the Gospel of John now, we've been informed by the prologue in chapter 1, so her question, are you greater than our father Jacob, seems a little pedantic, doesn't it? Like, really? This is the Word of God, who is God, who became flesh, and he's standing by a well dug by the patriarch Jacob, and he's being questioned about whether or not he's greater than Jacob. And he doesn't even balk at this. Jesus answered, verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up into eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She's still not getting it. But understand this. Understand what Jesus just said in that verse. Everyone is thirsty. Every person you meet, I don't care if you run into them at Starbucks or you're at work or you're at the gym or you're in school or you're at the hospital or you're at the library, every person you meet is thirsty. According to Jesus, everybody has a thirst on the inside of them that can only be quenched by drinking from the well that Jesus provides. Nothing else is going to quench your thirst. No other well that you would try to drink from will satisfy you. And our culture is constantly bombarding us with advertisements about other wells that claim to be able to satisfy this deep longing in your soul, that, be, that they claim to be able to satisfy this thirst the well of power. Oh, if you get, if you get more power, you, you'll, be, you'll feel good about yourself. You'll be, oh, that'll satisfy your thirst. If you get more money, that's what you need. Yeah, the reason you're unhappy is you just don't have enough money. If you just had more money, your problems would go away. You'd be, oh, you'd breathe, you'd be, it's okay to be me. 
if you had a better position, if you had a promotion, if your political party wins the election, everything would be okay. You could just drink deep for that well. Politics. Here's one. Romantic love. Oh, if you just have a romantic love, everything would be all right. No more problems. You just drink from that well. Everything will be okay. If you have success, if you have cars, houses, boats, sex. Here's one. If you have the perfect family and your family never makes a mistake, your husband never says anything stupid. (laughs) Your kids always make the right decision. Successful. They clean up the kitchen. They buy you awesome presents for your birthday. Everything will be all right. Listen, all of those things can be good things, but they are powerless as wells of water to satisfy your thirst. And if you drink from those wells, let me tell you what happens. You don't get satisfied of your thirst. You get addicted. And you get thirstier. You know what Yahweh said to the people of Israel, Jeremiah 2, verse 13? Listen to these words because it applies to what Jesus is saying here. My people, this is Yahweh speaking, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. I'm the only one that can satisfy the thirst. And their first sin was they forsake me. And number two, they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. What was Yahweh saying? He was saying, I'm the only well you can drink from that will satisfy the longing in your soul. Every other cistern is broken. I don't care what they say on TV. And all the wells that we try to drink from to quench our thirst, listen to this, all those things I mentioned are outside of us. See, the world is telling you the answer for you is outside there. It's, it's some, the answer, the well is outside there. And Jesus said, I'm going to put my well inside you. I mean, we learn later he's talking about the Holy Spirit. We don't have time, but if we could, we'd read all of John 7. And John 7 kind of culminates in verse 37. Listen to this. This is Jesus speaking. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. First of all, Don't you love the fact that our Jesus didn't say, hey, if you got it together, come to me and I'll give you a drink. If you're super smart, come to me. If you got money, come to me. He just said, you thirsty? You thirsty? Come on. Mary Matthew said, let the weary and the burden. You know, some churches, they got target groups. Like we're trying to target 20 to 30-year-old wealthy people. They got a target. How about Jesus' target group? Are you thirsty? You thirsty? Come on. Let anyone who is thirsty come and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And then look at verses 39. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. What is he saying? I'm going to put my spirit in you, and you're going to drink deep of me, and that's the only thing that's going to satisfy you. It's not stuff out there. It's what I put in here. Verse 16, he told her, you know what? Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Yikes. 
I mean, can you imagine what that felt like for her? I mean, just be her for a second. A stranger comes up to you and starts reciting your sins that you thought nobody knew about. Notably, now just let, let this in for a second. Jesus does not rebuke her for her sexual history. Did you notice that? I mean, in the last chapter, we were told, after Jesus had encountered uh, Nicodemus, we were told that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. And we see him doing it right here in the very next chapter. Now, when we come to this lady, don't demonize her, okay? Because maybe, yes, maybe she divorced all those men because she had a sexual addiction, or maybe because she was looking for love in the wrong arms, or, 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 or maybe it was something inside of her, or... Maybe she had just been exploited. Maybe she had been used and abused by men. And and to be quite frank with you, historically speaking, that is far more likely. You didn't have women just running around divorcing everybody in the first century. It It was not an even playing field. Okay? But either way, whether it's something in her and she did it or she's a victim of this, in that culture, she would be perceived by everybody else at best morally questionable, but probably far worse than that. In fact, probably with language that probably shouldn't say from the pulpit. You know what happened this week as I was reading this text? I saw something I've never seen before. This, listen, I have been, I, I've been, I have known Jesus, I've been in church for almost 53 years. I was born on a Sunday during a church service, and I was in church the next Sunday morning. Is that true or not? And for 52 and a half years, I've been in church, and I never saw this until this week. I've preached this text twice before. And when you preach a text, you read it over and over and over and over again, and I, and I saw something I've never seen. You know why? Because you will never plumb the depths of Scripture. It will always be deeper. I was talking to dad the other day. Dad's 76, and he's still learning stuff. I saw something I never saw. Stick with me. Do the math. She had five husbands. The man she's with now is not her husband. Making Jesus the seventh man. And if you've been here and we're going through the Gospel of John, you know the seven, number seven in John, there's seven signs that tell us who Jesus was. There's seven witnesses that testify to Jesus. There are seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I'm the way, truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Seven times he just says, when somebody asks who he is, he just says, I am. Seven. So as the seventh man, he's going to offer her complete and perfect acceptance that no other man has ever offered her. He's going to love her the way no other man could ever love her. There was a line in the song we sang, again, it's not in my notes, the one who knows me best is the one who loves me most. Jesus knows her all the way to the bottom, the deep, dark bottom, and guess what? He isn't scared away because of her sin. Somebody needs to hear that. He isn't disgusted by her. He's not degrading her. He's not using her. He's not repulsed. 
by her brokenness. He's not trying to take from her. He's bringing eternal life. Apparently. Apparently. Her past, her brokenness, her sin does not disqualify her from encountering Jesus. I just wonder if there's somebody here because of your past, you just feel disqualified. (laughs) Hang on. Verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. (laughs) This is like the understatement of the Bible. He's telling her everything about her past, and she says, in the King James, it's, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Um, And then she asks a question. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, and and that's not like today if after service I said, woman, that that would be bad. But in this culture, that wasn't bad. So he's he's not being chauvinist, okay? Believe me. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, for many years when I read this text, I, I, I used to see this as a smokescreen. Like, it seemed to me like she got busted, right? And she's trying to deflect, divert the light, right? Like, put the light on something else. So she asked a theological question to take the heat off. That, that's what I always thought because, and the reason for that is, I do that sometimes. So I just assumed she would too, right? I mean, like, like so deflect, deflect. And it's possible, that's not impossible, it's possible, but I think it's more likely this is a legitimate question. Because as I've learned more, this is one of the deepest questions, this is the heart of Samaritan theology. Where do we worship? Where is the locus of God's presence on earth? And Jesus' answer is, it's not about where you worship, because he is the new temple. He is the locus of God's presence on the earth. In Jesus' own body, God dwelled physically on earth. Jesus is the great high priest who mediates between humans and God. Jesus is the full and final sacrifice for sin. All the functions of the ancient temple have been replaced in Christ himself. And so true worship, he says, is mediated by the Spirit, but it's practiced in the truth of Christ's redemptive work on the cross. Verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Now, again, another piece of Samaritan theology, the Samaritans only had the five books of Moses, and even not that completely. They didn't have the rest of the Old Testament. And their theology was, Samaritan theology was, there is going to be a Messiah, but he's not going to be a Messiah in the lineage of David who will be king. The Samaritan says the Messiah will come in the lineage of Moses and he'll be a prophet. Because 
Deuteronomy 18 prophesied the Messiah. Deuteronomy 18 says, I will raise up another prophet like Moses. And he's prophesying the Messiah at that point. The Samaritans believe that. The Jews actually believe that too. And Christians have always believed uh, Deuteronomy 18 is prophesying the Messiah, Jesus. They're going to come. And so we know Messiah is coming. He'll fix everything. And Jesus says, NIV, I am he. In Greek, I am. Does that sound familiar? This was the Samaritan's favorite name for God because it comes from the Moses story in Exodus chapter 3. You remember the story. Moses out tending sheep. He sees a bush. It's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And he says to himself, I will see this strange sight. That's King James. It's like, I will see this strange I will turn aside and see this strange sight. So he turns aside. He goes, and God starts speaking to him out of this burning bush. And he says, I've heard the cries of my people. I have come down. I'm going to deliver them. Now you, go deliver them. Tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses says, I'm not saying I'm going, okay? <laughs> but let's say, for example, I did go. And they said, oh, really? You talked to God? What's his name? What am I to tell him? Remember what God said? You tell him, I am who I am. I am who, in other words, I have a real ontological existence. I, it's not I am whoever you want me to be. I am whoever your culture thinks I am. No, I am who I am. And you go tell them that. And that's what Jesus, in fact, in the Gospel of John, seven times people ask Jesus something and he responds with, I am. And this is the first time. Just let that sink in for a minute. The first revelation by Jesus that he is the Messiah in the Gospel of John comes to a morally compromised Samaritan woman. I love Jesus. He makes religious people so mad. Verse 26. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking to her? They're like, okay, it's Jesus. What's he doing? I don't know, but don't ask him. Um, Verse 28. Then leaving her water jar. Now think about this. If you read the Gospels, this is the language of discipleship. She's doing the same thing the men disciples do. Remember when, when, when he called fishermen, the text says they left their nets behind. They released their nets and they followed Jesus. She left her jar behind. And remember Bartimaeus, what is it, Mark 10? It says he, he, he's got his cloak out, he's begging, and when Jesus tells him to come, it says he threw his cloak aside and left it to follow Jesus. She's doing the same thing here. This is the language of discipleship. The woman back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. This dude knows everything about me and he still loves me. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. So now here's the picture. We have a little interlude in the story because at this point she goes back. She tells the Samaritans, come and see. And they're going, okay. They're coming to him. And as they're walking to him, we have a little interlude. Verse 31, meanwhile, back at the ranch, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him some food? See, they don't get it any more than the woman does. Did somebody, did you, did you, have, did you give him a cliff bar? 
My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me. See, right there, we, you know, this whole concept in John is that Jesus was sent by the Father, and now he sends us. He sent me to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look to the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. So just like the woman, they misunderstand Jesus' words. Just like she, she misunderstood it about the water and the well, they misunderstand about food and the harvest and precisely at the moment that he's saying, open your eyes, the harvest is here, the Samaritans walk up. The harvest is always closer than you think if you'll just open your eyes. And I pray God gives us eyes to see. Verse 39, and this is the conclusion of the text. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed. Two more days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that a man really, that this man really is the savior of the world. In the gospel of John, just let this, let this in. And you know what? Enjoy this with me. In the Gospel of John, the Samaritans are the first one to realize Jesus is Savior of the world. I mean, John had already said he takes, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but the Samaritans realize he's going to save everyone, not just the Jews. And just like in chapter 1, Jesus tells John's disciples, come and see. And Philip tells Nathaniel, come and see. <laughs> this woman tells the village, Come and see. <laughs> and they come based on her testimony, but they stay because they encounter Jesus for themselves. This is the way to do evangelism. I believe in apologetics. I study apologetics. I think it's good to have a reason for why you believe in all of those things. Absolutely. But here's the way you do evangelism. Come and see. You just invite people to come and see and meet Jesus for themselves. <laughs> So let's apply this very quickly because every message ought to have a so what, who cares, how does that affect me part of the message. Here it is. Here's the application. We have a woman in this story who has three strikes against her. She's a female in a patriarchal society. She's a Samaritan in a Jewish world. And she's morally compromised at best with a, a checkered, let's be nice, a checkered sexual past. Say it another way. The Samaritan woman at the well was a gender outsider, a racial outsider, and a moral outsider. And yet, three strikes against her, but she's not out. Oh, no. In fact, she becomes the first and most successful evangelist to the Gentiles at this point. She brings a whole village to Jesus. Three strikes, but she's not out. 
And that brings me to the big idea of this message. And some of you are going, wait, this is the end of the message. And I know. But if I told you this big idea earlier, you wouldn't have listened to me. But now that you've been through the story, I tricked you. Here's the big idea. Your past does not disqualify you from encountering Jesus or serving Jesus. I want you to let this in. Your past does not disqualify you from encountering Jesus. I mean, if, if, if your past could disqualify you from just knowing Jesus and serving Jesus, this woman would be out. And so would I. And so would you. Because there is no one in this room that has never sinned. There is no one righteous, no, not one. Ecclesiastes says there's no man on earth that always does what is right and never sins. <laughs> Hard to misinterpret that verse. <laughs> all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, no, not one. I mean, these, I could do this all day. Not one person in this room saved themselves. So here's the good news from that. You are not disqualified. This text springs a, it speaks a strong message of encouragement to people bearing shame and guilt of moral compromise. Or let's just say she was the victim of being exploited by women. And some of you know what, uh, being exploited by men. And some of you know what that feels like. Maybe she's dealing with the trauma of, of, exploitation. You are not disqualified. And one of the reasons I belabor this point is that we need everybody in our body engaged and encountering Jesus and serving Jesus. We are at a time in the history of our world that is crucial. We are at a critical, this is a kairos moment. This is a divine moment in the history of our world. And, and, and our, the enemy of our soul, Satan, wants to keep people in bondage because of the shame of their past. And we can't afford it. Our church cannot afford for you to be bound by your past. And guess what? Jesus died on the cross to set you free. And he deserves for you to live in the freedom he won for you. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free, no longer to be subject to a yoke of slavery. He, it's not because of you. It's because he deserves us to be free because he paid for it. I, I was talking with Andy Landers. He's the base director of YWAM Louisville here, and we were talking about not, not just YWAM, but across the board in missions, the proportion of men to women is getting even more and more off than it's ever been. There's less and less young men going into missions. And I think this is a dangerous trend. It's going down, down, down. And, and so the percentage, and I just taught a DTS this week that had 19 young people. 17 of them were women, two were men. Okay, it's, but it's not just YWAM. It's every mission. So we're talking about this. What, you know, how are we going to stem the tide? What, what is going on? I'll never forget, we're sitting there in the, in the hallway, and, and I'll never forget what Andy said. He goes, I, I got a theory. I said, what, what is it? And he goes, pornography. I believe a lot of young men are living in shame and in bondage, and they think they can't do anything for God. 
they don't deserve to encounter Jesus. They don't deserve to do anything for God. And I lay that over this story. I, you know, I, as a pastor, I deal with a lot of people who struggle with a lot of things. And uh, pornography is no joke. I believe it to be demonically inspired. The recent statistics I read were 70% of men have viewed pornography in the last year. 70%. And here's what's shocking. The number for women is going up too. It's over 40% now. And here's what I know. Those kind of addictions, they grow in the dark. And Jesus can set us free. He can set us free. I don't want to be a downer here at the end because here's what I want you to know. There is victory. There is deliverance. There is healing. If you're in bondage to that or any other moral failure or any other besetting sin, there is forgiveness and deliverance and freedom. But you got to drink from the right well. And to drink deep from the only well that will satisfy. Because all that stuff, that's where you're trying to find satisfaction. It is powerless. Ironically, it's impotent. Only the living well of Jesus Christ and his spirit will satisfy that desire. So you know what we're going to do? We're not going to be a church that's going to say, hey, we're held back by our past. Oh, no, 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 because we got Jesus. Yes. Right? So whatever, we, we sang the song that shame, our past is not going to hold us back. We're not, shame is not welcome here. Nope. All right. Right? Because of the blood of Jesus.